0: And now another episode of Mind Escape with Michael and Maurice. Take it away, Michael. All right, folks. Welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. We have part two here. Uh, We're back with author of Prehistory Decoded, Martin Sweatman. Hi guys. So uh, where we left off before we had a little bit of a technical difficulty was uh, we were talking about the Sphinx and roughly how old it was, and we were discussing the uh, Sphinx Temple and the uh, possible age, and you were saying you th- think the age is probably six, 7,000 BC uh, based on the, um, um, the uh, constellation alignments. That's right. So, yeah, in our Zodiac,
1: our ancient Zodiac, um, the feline represents cancer, not Leo. We know it as Leo, but that's because of some change that happened much later, probably. So if you take it to be cancer, then you get a date of six and a half to 7,000 BC, which agrees with Robert Schock's original weathering estimate. And and then, of course, there's this thermoluminescence measurements of the, the granite blocks uh, from the... Um, the Sphinx Temple. So everything's lining up, pointing towards a much older Sphinx, and I think it's probably, it was built in a, you know, the, the sort of period just before what's known as the 8.2 killer year event, which I suggest is another very destructive uh, episode, a bit like the Younger Dryas uh, impact, but perhaps not quite as extreme. And there is good evidence, actually, that there was another uh, destructive episode at that time, so uh, th- this eight point two year killer, eight point two killer year event is another climate event. Um, it's the strongest climate event in the Holocene. At the same time, we have an event known as the Storegga Slide in the North Sea. Uh, so this was a, um, a massive slump of the of the um, the oceanic shelf. So that this, this 1,000 cubic miles, they say, of this oceanic shell fell into the Abyss, creating a massive tsunami. And according to the best radiocarbon dating evidence there is, it happens at the same time as there is this 8.2-year, um, killer-year event in terms of climate. So we've got this climate event and the, this massive, the, the largest known uh, undersea landslide, basically, happening all- with simultaneously within the, the dating evidence that we have. And then we also have something called the um, the, Blacks, uh, the Black Sea Deluge Hypothesis. So this is where uh, the Black Sea is thought to have uh, catastrophically um, flooded at about the same time. We find also there is um, the eastern flank of Mount Etna in Sicily collapses at about the same time, producing a tsunami which they found evidence for along the coast of Israel. So lots of these catastrophic events... Now, catastrophic events happen. You know, they do happen. It's just that these happen all at about the same time, at about the time that the uh, we're travelling through the Torrid meteor stream, and at about the time, the, the time that um, uh, the Sphinx, or the end of you know, the Sphinx, may have been uh, constructed. So well,
0: there are we- lots of... Do do you have an or do they have an idea of what Egypt looked like um, during and post Younger Dryas, like what kind of effect it had on the landscape?
1: Yeah, it's a strange thing you see because uh, there is archaeological evidence from the Nile Valley, <clears throat> sorry, in, in Egypt, um, from around the time of the Younger Dryas impact, or maybe just slightly after. And the people then were a bit like the Natufian; they were kind of hunter-gatherers, from what we can see. Uh, so they were they were not advanced at all, like the, the, late, the later um, dynastic e- uh, Egyptians. So we have so around nine thousand BC, we have the this hunter-gatherer population in the Egyptian Nile, uh, and then there is a blank for three thousand years. There seems to be nothing. Um, no, oh. Practically nothing at all. Right. In in my book, I call it an archaeological black hole. There's nothing at all. Until you get to about just after 6,000 BC. And then the archaeological evidence starts to build up again. We start to see the very beginning of, um, again, uh, sort of basic living uh, along the Nile in huts and so on. Um, And we see the, the, the gradual development of Egypt up towards the, dynastic period so we've got this 3,000 year hiatus in um, occupation along the Egyptian Nile between 9,000 and 6,000 BC and it has no explanation it it has some explanations but uh, I'll tell you uh, what the archaeologists are saying I think at the moment is that that can be explained by an event known as the wild Nile so they say that uh, at some point the Nile flooded extremely high and it washed away uh what uh, what kind of primitive people there were perhaps at that time okay so that that could explain that but um it could also be that as i say that in the book that there was this much greater event at this 8.2 8.2 kilo year event which perhaps there was a mega tsunami or something which actually washed away a much more advanced ancient egyptian civilization than we, we currently know about and that would explain this this three thousand year sort of archaeological black hole. Mm-hmm. It was just wiped away.
0: Yeah, I mean, it seems to uh, happen throughout human. Even if you look at it on, a, on a more micro scale, the dark what we know is the Dark Ages and medieval times. You know, it's like yeah, there's some stuff, but there's not a lot. You know, and that's why they call it the Dark Ages. So throughout human history, for whatever reason, whether it's the plague or an astronomical event, we seem to obviously other things take precedent like surviving. So um, do you believe that a lot of these people took refuge in, you know, like they, like Darren Kuyu and um, like you were mentioning, um, you know, the Turkey region before there's a lot of the cave systems around there. Do you believe these people, you know, took refuge there? Or what what do you think was happening?
1: I honestly don't know. Uh, It's not something I've really looked into. So what I could say is perhaps... I don't know the ages of those cave systems. I don't know if anyone really does. It's feasible, perhaps, yeah. I mean, it's it's a, it's a an interesting idea, and scientific questions have to start somewhere. You know, you have to start with an idea, with a hypothesis, and then you have to go and find the evidence. So I think yeah. as a suggestion, yeah, perhaps. Uh, but we, we need more evidence, I think.
0: Yeah, and I, I think there, that's important that you say that too, because it's like, we all want to speculate. I mean, that's, that's what we do on this podcast. We just speculate, mm-hmm. we throw stuff at the wall, see what sticks. Um, yeah. and we, you know, we include a lot of different ideas and, um, theories and hypotheses. But when you look at it, a lot of these things that were considered crazy 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago are now coming to the forefront. You know, it's not even just, you know, it, it's, you look at a Graham Hancock and a John Anthony West, but then you see all these other things popping up and things that are being proven right. You know, like, gobekli tepe was impossible um, until they found it so um, where i do think you're right we do need to look at these sites from a scientific lens um the fact that there could be other gobekli tepes or the fact that there could be new finds i think is very exciting and i think that's why you do see a lot of this this topic out there you know whether it's youtube or you know on tv or whatever so
1: yeah but as a physicist i completely agree with you as a physicist uh, it kind of surprises me that the mainstream archaeologists are so are often so sure about themselves. I mean, they'll probably say, "Oh, we don't, we're not so sure," and yet they come across as being extremely sure about what they think they know. Right. But as a physicist, you know, as a scientist, um, yeah, I think you have to be much more cautious than that. I, I think you have to, you know, all all theory starters an idea. And it may start out, it might sound pretty ridiculous when you first consider it, but then you go and find the evidence and the evidence, sometimes the, there isn't any evidence and it was a crazy idea. End of story. Sometimes the evidence is there and you find it and it's, it backs up what your hypothesis and, you, and it keeps on going and everything, all of these really good ideas at some point have started out as a crazy idea.
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean, even look at uh, Galileo, Copernicus, you know, Bruno, Giordano Bruno. These people were, you know, villainized for, the, for, their view, for their views. But so, but I think the other thing to think about too is like what you're saying. You're an actual physicist saying, "Yes, we need to be more open-minded." I think that that's lost. We had another physicist on who wrote a book called "Losing the Nobel Prize," Brian Keating, mm-hmm. and he, he he was saying similar things, like, you know. This idea that just because you're a scientist, you can't have human or cognitive biases, abs- absurd. It's just something that comes with human nature, um, and I think if you can accept that, you know, uh, there can be a conversation. But it seems like so many these people are sure of themselves. And to be honest, I don't even think most Egyptologists have geology background. I, I know like Robert Schock does, and that's why probably catches a little bit of a guff because he's got an actual scientific background. Whereas a lot of these people have art history made, you know, art history major, um, anthropology, you know, some of these things are not as concise.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's something I was really keen on when I was writing my book was to make sure it was, it showed how the scientific method works. It showed, uh, as scientists, we don't know everything. Absolutely. That, empirical science is actually based on the statistical analysis of data and without that all you're doing is guessing really uh, and I think a lot of what the archaeologists and historians are doing well particularly if you go back into prehistory a lot of what they're doing is is guesswork and it would be nice if they perhaps admitted that a bit more <laughs> right rather rather than being rather than being so uh, determined that they're right uh, so yeah, I think as a physicist, it surprises me that um, when you don't have the scientific statistical evidence, that, that archaeologists can still be so, quite so sure about themselves.
0: Yeah, I mean, we always say like, we are living, breathing magic, just to think about the fact that what you are, what I am, the fact that we're having a conversation through a computer, you know, right now is just the most nuts thing. And the fact that more people just go about their day and don't even think about... Where we come from, what we are, what we're doing here—is there a purpose? Is there not a purpose? You know, like uh, that's the stuff that we're constantly confronted with. Uh, that's why we talk about that stuff on our show because people just go through their day blindly. Oh, I read it in a book. Oh, this is what you know. Ancient Egypt was twenty-five hundred, you know, fifty years ago or BC, and, and that's set in stone. There's you know, don't question.
1: Yeah, that's that. that's the date that comes up. I, did, I was typing it up, and yeah, twenty-five hundred BC is apparently
0: the the fact.
1: So, yeah. I, I mean there there is um there's a kind of a scientific, there's a historical, there's a history of science story here as well, trying to get my words out. <clears throat> so, I mean you can trace back what we're really talking about here is an argument about catastrophism. Whether there have been or have not been great catastrophes, cosmic catastrophes on the time scale of human development. And that argument goes back thousands of years. You can take it all the way back to Plato, probably before Plato, um, but I, 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 I certainly know I can go back as uh, as far as Plato. So Plato talks. I mean, you mentioned it earlier about Uh, Atlantis. I don't know about Atlantis, but he does talk about
0: the Creteus.
1: Exactly, but he does talk about the the uh, myth, which is this um, this myth of um, the 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 son of the son of the sun right uh, uh sort of riding his chariot losing control of his chariot and burning up burning up the earth and so on and in at the in the same almost in the same paragraph uh, it goes on to say that has the tone of a myth but actually it's a real event and these events are caused by um uh, basically bodies in space that uh, revolve around you know in in the sky and so on and every Every, every long interval of time, I think is how it's described, uh, we get bombarded with these, these things from, from the heavens or from space. And that is an absolutely perfect description of and napiers um, coherent catastrophism. You know, it, it's, it's precise. So it's amazing to think that even in Plato's time, they, they must have known about this. You couldn't make that up if, you, if, you didn't, if that, hadn't, that hadn't have happened, because it's so, such an accurate description of coherent right. catastrophism. Uh, I mean, the ancient
0: Greeks that, you know, they, they, for some of the stuff, they obviously could have been using um, myth, you know, myth back then was basically an explanation for things they can't explain, whether it's scientific related, or I guess some of it could be made up. I mean, we're human beings, we all have imaginations, but um, I can't put myself in the mind of somebody back then. So all I can do is speculate. But in terms of back then, obviously, there wasn't even science. So You know you look at myth yeah lannis there could have been an advanced civilization is it as exaggerated as what people make it out to be with spaceships and energy systems and the great great uh pyramids shooting lasers up in the sky probably not but there could have been a seafaring people that got around the whole globe somehow that we just are not aware of or something along those lines
1: yeah i think it's perfectly perfectly fair perfectly reasonable and i think if there was, it was probably this civilization just before the 8.2 kiloyear event. Perhaps it was them that managed to create a, a, a global network. Well, maybe maybe not the entire globe, but a, a, a seafaring uh, civilization.
0: Well, I mean, I know, too, there's been like um, Thor Heyerdahl. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with his work, um, but he made it to Easter Island from the uh, coast of uh, Chile um using yeah. just native you know trees you know rope from you know vegetation and all that kind of stuff so if somebody can make a raft there's no doubt in my mind that the possibility of making boats back then you you know was was, was high so
1: oh absolutely i mean <clears throat> they we know that they are able to make bone flutes many tens of thousands of years ago. Now, yeah. if you can make a bone flute, you can make a raft. Sure, <laughs> sure, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and they, they were good astronomers, so they could navigate. So what more and do you
0: need? I think most people, before the Younger Drives, wasn't, there was a lot more land bridges too, wasn't there? There was uh, Sundaland and Dodgerland. And, I mean, at one point, wasn't, Europe was connected, to, or um, the UK was connected to the rest of Europe absolutely yeah
1: you're right so there was the sunderland uh however there was still a, a a deep what do we call it um ocean passage between
0: right right yeah. or no, uh,
1: sunderland and Australia right so there is still this uh this strange case of how did the, the you know the original Australians, how did they how did they get there um but if you say that they were a seafaring there's no reason why they, they couldn't have been I I think, think I've
0: seen something that they pushed their timeline back to 40, 50,000 years ago as far as yeah. native yeah. Australians. They could have came there even before that, yeah. previous to some other event happening. Yeah. So, so um, no, if,
1: if, if you can build a raft and you can navigate with the stars, then it becomes quite reasonable that you get to Australia.
0: So, with the uh, archae- archaeoastronomy uh, side of things with Gobekli Tepe, um, When you started doing the work, was it you just kept making correlations or was it something that came naturally just from having kind of a template or how did that work?
1: I guess there's a connection with my actual research here, my sort of professional research. So um, my professional research is in an area called statistical mechanics. And what that entails is um, understanding the statistics of arrangements of atoms and molecules and, and how that relates to states of matter like solid and liquid and gas and so on. Mm-hmm. So in any case, I, I'm basically trained in statistically analysing um, arrangements of objects in space. When I say in space, I don't mean outer space. I mean, you know, on a, in 3D. And I suspect that that had something to do with me seeing that I could analyze the um, pillar 43 in basically the same way. It's the same kind of maths, analyzing that pillar, how the different animal symbols are arranged. What's the chance of that happening purely by chance when you compare with the uh, the constellations? Uh, so I suspect that probably helped me come up with the, um, the sort of scientific statistical uh, method.
0: Do you uh, think i'm oh, sorry go ahead kevin oh, i was just gonna say that's pretty interesting do yeah you, <laughs> completely out of watch out um do you think that uh when you when you look at your what you've done and everything and compare it have you had anybody take a look at it like any not necessarily peer-reviewed because i know you know your, your your background is actually physics you would probably have your stuff peer reviewed there but in terms of Um, Have you had anybody look at your book um, and and, and give you notes on any ideas about it or is it something you feel um, comfortable with as is? So the
1: the Gebektepe paper, uh, that was peer-reviewed, published in the journal um, Mediterranean Archaeology and Archaeometry. So that was peer-reviewed. Our follow-up paper about the european paleolithic cave art again uh, that's that was published in the uh, athens journal of history so that was peer-reviewed as well um now the book it's just it's uh i say just it's um it's a general science book so it's not going to get peer-reviewed and right. it's, it's only been it's only been out a, a couple of months um so far the, the reviews that readers have posted on Amazon and so forth are, are really encouraging you know they're, they're really good they're really good um, so I'm very happy with that in terms of academic um, sort of critique of my book there hasn't been any as far as I I know yet so we'll see about that I was just curious
0: because um, there's always um... There's always a bunch, you know, when it comes to this kind of a topic, even though your main subject is hard science and you're taking a hard science approach to it, there's always going to be these trolls that come out of the world where, oh, couldn't possibly, oh, we know all about that. It was hunter-gatherers and there was nothing special about them and they just built stuff together, you know? So it's it's that, that um, you know, rhetoric that I think you'll hear from probably, and I haven't read your book yet, but I... Just knowing that you're, you're correlating things together, um, people don't like that for, for whatever reason. I don't <laughs> know why that is, but um, just to think that people back then had the intelligence to do something like that seems to be taboo, so. Yeah.
1: No one has yet. Um, there hasn't been, so our, our Fox paper, so this was the Quebec Tepe paper, the site's archaeologists uh, wrote a rebuttal in the same journal, and, and we responded to that rebuttal Sure. I think I think pretty adequately. So there there was that response. Yeah. Now you might imagine that the site's archaeologists would provide some kind of rebuttal because you know they're meant to be well they are the experts at the site. Right. So how can this other person uh, tell us anything about it?
0: Uh, that, paleo- that,
1: oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, the, the Paleolithic cave art paper. There hasn't been any rebuttal to that, um, not yet, anyway. So as things stand, as they are, it stands, you know, at the moment it's unchallenged. And part of the reason I suspect for that is because it's, it is a proper statistical scientific study. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and as far as I'm concerned, the statistical methods are robust. They are, it's, it's an ironclad case as far as I'm concerned. So, um, you know, if someone wants to to produce a rebuttal i'd be very happy to answer uh, any criticisms it's it's the way that science works you know there's always this to and to and froing um from from different quarters so you know hopefully someone will will write something about
0: it well i think it's important too i mean because you know it doesn't always have to be negative too somebody could have like oh i have a theory about this too and this is what i think and it could lead to even more of your own discovery that's why um I like to do this podcast because even when I have a preconceived no- notion about, like, let's say what we're talking about, Gobekli Tepe, I'll learn a bunch of new stuff, and then it changes my viewpoint on what I already know and how I'm going to approach it going forward, you know? So um, obviously that's that's an important part of the process. But uh, do you think that um, – I wanted to go back to, to the the uh, Falcon pillar, if we're going to call it that going forward. Yeah, um, okay the The handbags on the top. Now, I, I I know I say handbags, but that's only because there's other sites throughout the world. Whether it's ancient Mayan, um, there's Aboriginal, uh, Caso rock art in California. I mean, there's a ton of places that have depictions whether it's the you know the apkalu of ancient assyria holding these bags you know with one of them's got a pine cone in one hand and one's got the bag in the other hand what do you think's going on there because um, those are the same things that are featured at the top of that pillar now it seemed i think you said something about the sunset or the horizon or something but why is it in sections like th- three like that and why and in, in other depictions and other uh, civilizations do you believe that they're holding this thing
1: well, I mean, so first of all, on the on Pillar 43 at Gebekli Tepe, it's in three sections because there are, after the summer solstice, you've got three left. You've got the, the winter solstice and two equinoxes, so that's why there's three. Okay. Um, now, I, I have no idea whether there's any kind of relationship between those handbags hmm. and le- later handbags uh, that you find around the world. There might be. Okay. Um I have no idea.
0: It's curious. It looks exactly yeah. the only reason why I mean yeah, there's no similar. I think anybody with with a keen eye can look at that thing and be like this looks similar. It's weird. I mean yeah. and I haven't been able to find an academic reasoning for it. It's always yeah. you know obviously the alien people are saying it's the um the the apparatus that you carry as an astronaut when you're going on to Because it does look like that too but obviously that's they probably didn't have that technology back then but I I find it curious that all these ancient civilizations do depict this thing, and um, it could just mean that they were carrying or traveling or on the move. I mean, who knows? But uh, I just find it curious that it is pictured in a lot of these ancient sites, which are important, and nobody talks about it.
1: Yeah, I mean... The answer is I don't know. However, I will <laughs> speculate. And it's okay to speculate because as scientists, this is
0: where
1: ideas start. So, um, so in my book, I suggest that there is this common astro-mythology which goes back maybe 40,000 years. And, and that time scale is no accident, by the way. I, I suggest that there is a reason for that time scale, um, which I can, I can talk about if you want. But anyway, so I suggest that there is... <clears throat> some kind of common astro mythology to um to the americas that that links the americas and eurasia and uh so my my um suggestion there is actually based on michael witzel's works and michael witzel is harvard professor of sanskrit and he wrote a book a few years ago 2013 i think it was origins of the world's mythologies and that 40,000 years is his time scale so he he suggested that there was a linked mythology over 40,000 years between the new world and the old and basically i agree with him and i'm i'm suggesting it's an astro mythology based on astronomy and constellations and so on and comets so we have this this 40,000 year time scale that would allow these kinds of symbols to distribute, you know, to sort of diffuse around the world. Now we see at Gebekli Tepe, this symbol, which I'm pretty sure is actually um, a sunset.
0: Yeah.
1: Okay. So again. could that be related to handbags somewhere else, you know, in the Americas? Well, I mean, it's, it's not, in, you know, it's possible. Perhaps if, if there is a link, perhaps what those handbags mean is the person carrying this handbag is an astronomer. Perhaps it's as simple as that. It's an astronomer-priest, or, be- um, or it could be um, some kind of deity linked to astronomy.
0: I, I mean, I haven't heard that uh, that take on it, so I definitely think that that's uh, plausible for sure, that that could be the case. Um, I've also heard, I mean, I think the, the one that I found kind of interesting, which I don't think has any basis, but I do see the connection is... Um, a lot of the the arches with the thing are similar to what the main hall looks like in a uh, Masonic lodge, and that that the arch could be part of some sort of Masonic, early Masonic symbolism.
1: Yeah, perhaps. Uh, Again, it's not not a subject I know anything about. um, But I I suspect... Symbolism has um, sort of dispersed and gradually changed and morphed and it gets represented in lots of different ways in different places. So, you know, all these things are, are possible.
0: I know, uh, Graham Hancock speculates that they were carrying psychedelics in there, which, I mean, that would be kind of a whole different, uh, ball game compared to kind of what you're talking about. But, uh, you know, that's obviously psychedelics have been used all over the world as well. But when you look at, uh, all the, the way the relief cuttings and the way that these were carved out, um, what kind of, I guess, level of sophistication do you think these people were at compared to, um, do you think they were closer to, um, you know, like our early, you know, homo sapien days, or do you think they're closer to modern humans? Um, like would we, um, identify with these people that, uh, that that built for Beckley Tapo. Wow, um,
1: it's so hard to say. I mean, if when you when you have
0: that comes along
1: and sort of wipes out your way of living, what do you do? There's this new religion that develops, and so that's getting people together. It's getting people to cooperate. Is that enough now? Do you sort of develop these new skills uh, as a way to sort of express your new religion? Yeah, I think it's possible. So I I can easily see that what what we're seeing at Gebekli Tepe is just a a phase of development after the Younger Dryas period. It's kind of catalyzed by the Younger Dryas um, event, bringing people together, they're sharing their knowledge, sharing their skills, they're supporting each other And it gives them the opportunity to develop um new skills like like this masonry having said that i I suspect that some of these skills are already there so as like i say um the natufian they weren't too far off being able to do this kind of thing based on present present evidence and as you as you've said before you know archaeologists are discovering new things all the time they barely scratch the surface of the earth there could be all sorts of discoveries out there which kind of oh, link yeah. together that make it all make sense, and I mean I suspect that actually when, when the archaeologists get around to excavating the rest of Quebecki tepe because there's only been about five or ten percent excavated, that we'll find a lot more clues in the remaining parts of Quebecki tepe, which, which kind of makes sense and piece it all together.
0: Yeah, I know there's some interesting stuff, specifically that totem pole with the top two heads um, which have been. I don't know, broken off or chiseled off, but uh, there's some interesting uh, symbology on there for sure. Um, when you assess, though, uh, this timeline, do you think that uh, we will ever get a, a specific, time, a more specific timeline in terms of, this was Gobekli Tepe, this was pre-dynastic Egypt, do you think we'll continue to fill in these blanks, or do you think that it'll always be blank because we just, we can't fathom what was happening that far back
1: yeah it's it that's a it's, it's a real problem i think because you have these disasters some of the evidence is going to be lost mm-hmm. it's going to be washed away or burned up it's going to be destroyed It's covered over so i think it's always going to be difficult to to fill in the gaps completely um but i, I and this comes back to one of the earlier things we were talking about is that the reason why I think there is so much resistance to this kind of idea in, I would say, conventional archaeological circles comes back to this history of science. So you go back to Plato, and there was this big argument he had uh, with, with Aristotle about you know, whether there, there were these catastrophes or not. And then you move on 1,500 years, and you get to the uh, sort of scientific renaissance, the resurgence of science in, in Europe. And it's the same arguments again. We've, we've been having these arguments about whether there are catastrophes or not all this way through. And then you get to about 200 years ago and suddenly there was this new paradigm in geology called uniformitarianism or gradualism, as it's also known. And, and we've been stuck with that kind of um, paradigm for the last 200 years, more or less, which says that there have been no cosmic um, Uh, events of of this kind, that the earth is basically pretty safe from space. And that's been the prevailing way of thinking for 200 years, going back to these, these, um, they're known as the sort of fathers of geology. So it's, it's very difficult to break down this way of thinking, which is permeated through pretty much all of academia. The whole of academia has built up its ideas on this principle, this geological principle of uniformitarianism or gradualism. So to challenge that is is really difficult, Uh, and that's why people like Graham Hancock and so on have have found so much resistance. Is because, have been saying completely the opposite. So you know it's going to take a lot of evidence, a lot of evidence to change, to make such a massive change. But I think we're seeing it come through. You know you've got the Younger Dryas impact, absolutely clear. It happened. The evidence is there. It's in the ground. People have found it. You've got craters. Whether those craters are related to we don't know, but the, the craters are at least telling us, hey, impacts on Earth happened.
0: Well, they have uh, micro diamonds and microspherals and all that yeah. kind of stuff too, right? Yeah,
1: absolutely. So
0: this is, again, something I um,
1: summarize in my book. I've been through all the papers on the Younger Dryas impact hypothesis pretty carefully. And for me, it's absolutely clear they have got all the evidence they need i'm i'm convinced that they are right on this and that the opponents to the hypothesis they've made so many mistakes some of the work they've done is is really not that good basic mistakes so when you compare the two sides it's obvious what's what's going on you no know, it's it's people trying to protect this 200 year old paradigm um, actually they're not they're not doing a great job what think, is, uh, John An-
0: yeah, John Anthony was, what does he called The, the uh, Church of Progress or something along those lines? Hey. Yeah,
1: so, you know, it's, it, it's it's the way that science goes, but, um, you know, you have these these changes in, in thinking that suddenly there's this reversal from one way of thinking to another. And this is, this is another example, but it's a really, really big example because we've sure. got this 200-year, at least 200-year backstory of gradualism that we're going to, we have to try and uh, confront and overturn. So we're going to need loads and loads of evidence. But I think we're getting there. You know, you've got, oh, yeah. you've got the Younger Dryas impact hypothesis. You've got places like quebec Tepe, You've got and um, napiers coherent catastrophes, amid all points in exactly the same direction.
0: Absolutely. Even I think Hamlet's Mill's good for all the, uh, the uh, flood myths and, and all that as well. Um do you think that uh we're due not to not to be <laughs> not to be uh dire or sound down, but do you think that we're maybe um Icarus style flying a little too close to the sun with the way we approach things with this oh, it's fine, we live on earth the scientists will uh detect something you know and when the torrid um, patch comes around um you know we could be up. Uh, well, when is that coming again, tomorrow?
1: Well, <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> no, if you, I think from my understanding, and I'm, I'm not one of the expert astronomers, but my understanding is that the next episode of, well, the next time that we will go through the core of the torrid meteor stream is around about 3000 AD, more or less, give or take a few hundred years.
0: Perfect.
1: So we've got, a, we've got another <laughs> thousand years Plus or minus a few hundred to get ready, and yeah. in any case, it could be a dab squib. You know, it it um, the, the torrid meter stream is constantly decaying, mm. so that the large objects that are there are, are gradually fragmenting, getting smaller. Uh, and so, by the time we reach three thousand AD, maybe there's not going to be much
0: left. We can hope. <laughs> yeah, maybe we already but- absorbed a lot of it. You know, if we've gone through that cycle a whole bunch, maybe us and some of our closest planets have already seen some of those uh, impacts.
1: Yeah, so what, what happens is the um, these asteroids, these sort of fragments of comets, they, they decay. And they turn into what we can see in, this, in, the, in the night sky as the zodiacal dust cloud. Okay. Uh, and it's known that this zodiacal dust cloud is actually pretty heavy. There's a lot of it. Um, if you were to take all of the dust in the inner solar system, that's counted as part of this zodiacal dust cloud, add it all up and sort of pack it back into a ball, you'll get a comet which is about 35 kilometers in diameter, which is much larger than any comet in the inner solar system we know about. Um, So we we, we know that on the time scale of a few tens of thousands of years, there was a giant comet in the inner solar system. The evidence is there. Basically, we can think of the zodiacal dust cloud as kind of like the fossilized remains of this ancient comet. It's crazy. So now, how much of it's left? This is the thing we don't know. It seems as though, um, particularly over the Holocene period, the last ten thousand years, that our interactions with the torrid meter stream have been getting weaker, which is good news. But you know, I think we need to spend a lot more money on researching. This toroidal meteor stream is yeah, it makes sense. It's yeah. it's the biggest cosmic threat to us. It's it's a it's a bigger threat than all of the other asteroids that we know about in the uh, inner solar system. So we should be focusing on that. I think.
0: That's great. Yeah, yeah, we're not. <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> uh, that's the, that's obviously. I think that's the biggest threat to humanity. I mean, besides maybe. I don't know ai in a thousand years if we let it go crazy you know but um i think uh i think we're 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 like you said we're preparing i mean i've heard ideas like uh, cast a big net <laughs> uh blow the thing up you know knock oh, it off I its core it. slowly knock it off i've actually heard this and i don't know if you've looked into this but they've been, they've been trying to use light like like light streams or light particles to push the comet or the asteroid away something about how, um, the dark side, like it's got obviously a dark side when it, um, rotates or something like along those lines and the, by constantly blasting light at it, it would push it off its course or something along those lines.
1: Yeah. No, I see there's a difference between how you might deal with asteroids and how you might deal with comets because asteroids are solid, pretty well packed, um, objects okay so you, you might be able to nudge them off course and blow them up or whatever right but if you've got a fragmented comet swarm you're kind of stuck you know you, you you might be able to move one piece but then you've got another thousand pieces that get past you so what can you do with a, a swarm of comet debris it's it's a very tricky one <laughs> and i i suspect that this is part of the reason why um particularly people uh, perhaps at NASA and sort of more um, sort of the, the, the sort of authority on these issues of, you know, cosmic impacts. Sure. That They don't really, or they're not, they haven't been that keen to look at this problem because they know it's a very difficult problem to deal with. What can you do with comets? If you, if you try and blow them up, they fragment and you still get all the fragments that, that yeah. come at you. So. Right. In a sense, I think they've tried to make this problem go away.
0: But you think ask, asteroids, a different story, you think we could deal with an asteroid?
1: Well, I think it's easier than
0: a, than a fragmented a one. Sure. <laughs> you've seen the movie, you've seen Armageddon, it's not a problem. <laughs> yeah, and, and I know they've actually been discussing possibly mining asteroids, you know, because they have, like, I, I, th- I was reading this one, and The one of them's got more titanium than the, the, the planet earth or something wow. along those lines there's some, some of these asteroids have more precious you know minerals on them than we have on our entire planet so i think yeah. that's been discussed um but yeah i mean it's an it's an interesting topic easy. i know when we go camping every year in northern michigan um i think it's the second week in august we catch the there's the torrid meteor uh sh- shower you can see up in the sky and you just see them blasting off every couple minutes um it's, it's, it's actually fascinating. It's beautiful too. You know, I live outside Chicago. You, we get a red glow out here. So anytime I can get up to the woods and get away from the light, it's, it's always fun.
1: Yeah. Now I see at the moment we, we don't pass through a, um, a particularly dense part of the torrent meteor stream. We're relatively free of it for the moment. Um, but I mean, what you're seeing there will come a time, you know, in a thousand years time where what you're seeing will be presumably much more intense, um, Many more bigger uh, fragments, um, very spectacular. And there's a suggestion, I think, um, Klube and Napier have, have suggested this before that this is kind of related to Halloween, the Halloween fireballs. So, there's that kind of um,
0: aspect of the sort of mythological background as well. But... That's interesting,
1: yeah.
0: Um, so just to wrap it up here and go back to get go back with Tepe for a minute, what do you? What's your, are you going to do a follow-up book or was this your masterpiece or what do you plan on doing with this in the future in terms of your research and um, do you think that there's more to be discovered along the lines that you've already kind of set out there or what's your? um...
1: Absolutely. Um, I don't know whether it'll come to another book. Uh, I think we'll just have to see how it goes, what evidence turns up. But um, what I'm doing at the moment is I'm blogging. Anything I, I find out, I'm blogging it. So, you know, if people are interested in this, I encourage them to come and, uh, come and read my blog, martinsweatman.blogspot.com.
0: Yeah, we'll add it to uh, – yeah, we'll put the link in the description. We'll put the link to your, uh, your book on Amazon as well. Yeah. Um,
1: Until – I, 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 if I have a, a very scientific case like I did for Gebetli Tepe or for the European – cave art and i'd rather publish that so you know to have it properly peer-reviewed and and published in a journal Mm -hmm. um but for the other stuff where you can't really make a scientific case where it's it's more speculative but the links are there sure uh, for that for that kind of work um yeah i'll be basically blogging that information uh on on my blog so uh, i the last month or so i've been digging into um, ancient egypt and the prehistory of egypt so i've got a few blogs about that i'm starting to look at um, sumeria uh, the ancient uh, civilization of Sumer, sure uh, right now and again it, the same see all the same things there so there'll be plenty to come out about that as well
0: yeah for information on those actually i don't know if you've ever read but there's a i think they're it's called the great courses and they usually have it's like a lecture but they like one teacher going through the whole thing uh, of it i've uh, i think i listened to the bob breer one on ancient egypt and there's a there's one in ancient sumeria too which is fascinating um but uh yeah thanks for coming on uh i'm Thank gonna you order said. your book it sounds fascinating uh, everybody should check it out we're gonna add the link to the uh, description uh prehistory decoded um and uh, we're gonna get you back on because i i do want to talk about physics and Sure. theoretical physics and all that kind of stuff. Cause that's one of our other, uh, that's cool our other uh, subjects yeah. on here, but uh, thanks for um, coming on. It's been fascinating. Is there uh, anything else you want to put out there? Thank
1: you for having me on. It's been great. I know there's a lot of questions that I've actually gone off topic. I've kind of gone sideways from what you asked me originally. So, I'll be happy to come back and, uh, yeah, we do know, that. Deal with you them. never know where we're going to go. <laughs> you
0: know? We got scat. I got so many things boiling up top that, uh, yeah. sometimes it gets lost in translation, but, uh, yeah. it was, it was a fun conversation and I learned a lot. And, you know, like I said, I'm going to check your book out and I, I like the, the, uh, the background behind it and, and what you're trying to do with it. So I yeah, think it seems there- like you got your ducks in a row for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. guys. Uh, yeah. We appreciate your work. Thanks for coming on and, uh, we'll get you back on in the future. Cheers. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Have a good one. See ya.